City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, city limits and uh, and a bit of a disaster this morning, really. One Corey's crook, and um, she's got some awful, awful virus thing. It might be going around because I had lunch with a bloke last Friday who had the same thing and told me he went two days the week before without eating, and for him that's a miracle. So um, clearly, it's uh, it may be going around, or maybe just uh, coincidentally got something. But she's got such sort of virus and uh, didn't sound at all well, and uh, unfortunately can't be here today. Uh, we were going to have an interview with Auntie Jenny Munro from the the tent embassy in in, um, in Redfern. Uh, we'll do that next week, I suspect. I left a message with Auntie Jenny yesterday about that, but we'll do it next week because it is our normal housing day. But uh, the other, it's not a disaster, but the housing people, either April or Jeff, both rang, well, not one of them rang, April rang to say that they were both tied up today and could they put it back a week. So, in fact, we're going to do our normal housing day next week. Uh, and... Um, and uh, the other disaster is I walked in this morning and found the kitchen full of all sorts of strange things and everything pulled out and there's no hot water so we can't even have tea so those who, who only tune in to hear the tea being poured and not the voices that go with them um, can't even have the tea poured this morning. We're just sitting here. <laughs> it's sort of cold turkey or cold nothing or something. Um, and But we have got a... Having said that, of course, we've got a wonderful program. I'm going to rave on for a while. Uh, and um, at the moment, Gab Reed is pressing buttons, etc. But uh, I think we've got someone coming in shortly to replace her. She's going to come and do the work she really should be doing. Uh, and... Um, our main interview today is with Peter Logan, who's from the Save Albert Parker. He actually is part of their show. But the, we'll talk, we will talk about the fact that the Labor government this week has extended the contract, having, uh, of course, in opposition back in the early days that Labor was so opposed to the Grand Prix, but it, that opposition maintained until they actually got elected to government. Uh, and... Um, the, uh, but what we're on with Peter about is the fact we talked last week about the campaign in Sunshine, which had saved parkland that the, the unelected commissioners wanted to flog off. And over at Albert Park at the moment, there's another one. We know they've been selling off schools all over the place and running out. And unfortunately, kids um, kids actually do come along in the communities and suddenly they've found all these kids in the community. We were going to do this interview next week, but we've switched with housing. And so Peter Logan's coming on to talk about the fact that also the government wants to use public parkland in Albert Park, part of Albert Park, I believe, and he'll give us the details of exactly where it is, to... Um, to place a new school because having sold off all the land they've suddenly discovered that young people do happen at times to have kids believe it or not would you believe so we'll be talking about that issue as well in the campaign to um, try and save the parkland from having a school put on it and the school should obviously go somewhere else there's also a lot allied to that of course and it is housing day is the fact that not only is it an education issue but it's also an issue with housing because flogging off of all those schools they all go to developers and in that part of the world on prime real estate um, when in fact given that uh, given they could have been used for public housing and of course these are ideal areas because they also have access to public transport and access to all sorts of facilities that uh, apparently the poor don't deserve to be near so there you are um, so that's today's program Peter Logan coming up in about uh, 10 or 15 minutes and um, just um, on other things, I'm just going to rave on for a while, therefore, which is, <laughs> you can go make a cup of tea now and get out of the way. Uh, the, the election of Jeremy Corbyn this week in Britain as the leader of the Labor Party, um, interesting. Uh, the, it's interesting and it reflects also on what's happened with uh, in Australia here with the election of, uh, of Turnbull by his own party, not by the people in his case, of course, and I guess Corbyn's also by his own party at this stage. 
knowledge. But as uh, soon as Corbyn was elected, the old Tony Blyer, Tony Blair mob, uh, new left, new Labour, as they called themselves, which had nothing to do with Labour, whatever, uh, and they're still calling him sort of middle middle politics uh, in the centre somewhere. Well, if that's the centre, good God, where is where is the right? And where? It, but anyway. Um, they're all saying, well, of course, we are a broad church and we must therefore accept everything. So having having totally ostracised the left of the Labour Party for all these years when they ran the show, they're now saying, well, if a left person's in charge, he must accept that we're here and he must accept the whole thing, etc. There's that sort of absolute hypocrisy going on. And to be fair, uh, in, in, in England, of course, the Labour Party always has had a a left group um, over many, many years. Sometimes it's been in more control than others, but there always has been a, a left group in Labor, whereas in, in Australia the there was a, a brief period in Victoria and maybe the early days of the socialist left here in Victoria when there was a genuine left, but that's that was a pretty brief period and it was really a, a, a period between the split and the uh, the right-wing unions coming back into the Labor Party. So it was a brief period here when there was... A, and these days, what's called the left in our Labor Party uh, has nothing to do with the left, whatever. And, um, and we've just changed over with panellists, which is all very good, Ian. Hello. Um, I haven't even met Ian myself, but hello, Ian. And say hello. Look, put, put your headphones on and say hello. I'm just raving on here at the moment, but you, you just put your headphones on and say hello. 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 How are you? All right. All right. And Ian. Ian's in because, uh, just to let people know, the Joe... Joe Toscano's program at four o'clock on Tuesday on um, Wednesdays about which interviews people about their lives, etc. Uh, Ian, we're interviewing a Papua New Guinean bloke yep. um, uh, for this afternoon's program. Um, tell us something about that before we go on. That'll kill a bit of time, won't it? Yeah, um, yeah, Uncle. Just tell like I've met him before. Um, he's a great musician from the um, the Pacific. He's from he's from Papua New Guinea, from Rabaul, which is in the Highland, mm-hmm. and he's um, such a great musician. And I think he's helped a lot of um, to bring up issues around the Pacific region, and especially now he's working with the musicians from uh, West Papua and to bring out the um, voice of the West Papuan people, which is they are still struggling mm. to get their own independence, uh, yeah. separated from the Indonesia. So yeah, yeah, Uncle, he's he's a um, for me, he's a great musician and he's friendly. He's really down to earth, and he's he's done some um, great um, criticizing the politician through the music, and he used the music as a platform, and which is inspired, uh, really inspired us to do the same thing and to speak out through music and um, highlighted the issues that are happening. Yep, around the world. and we'll get him to play a couple of songs on the show as well. Uh, but uh, and he, of course, because um, um, your compatriot Ronnie Kareni, who yep. works here, and because um, of the people probably guess from that accent that uh, Ian is actually a West Papuan. Um, and Ian, um, this bloke, this is the bloke who wrote a song for the end of the Pacific Games and wasn't allowed to play it because it was seen yeah. to be political. So uh, we'll have a yarn about that as well. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, when Ronnie um, rang me and they pretty much then they knew that he was going to sing um, a song about West Papua because um, the West Papua are part of uh, Melanesia and, and has been neglected for so many years and he wants to bring it out through these um, Pacific um, Games during the uh, closing ceremony. But um, he and the government uh, did not allow that because uh, the song that he was going to sing was really um, too... Um, <laughs> Yeah, politi- <laughs> too political. That yeah, can't bring politics into sport, do you? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> the, yeah, I think for the government, um, it's, it's just when you highlight some issue to the government, you're going to become the enemy of the government. So that's why they didn't allow that. But yeah, we probably we're going to hear more from him because he's yeah yeah. Okay, so that's, that'll be four o'clock this afternoon. We'll get rid of that one. Uh, I was talking about the election of um, Jeremy Corbyn to lead the uh, Labor Party in Britain, and of course they're all saying this is going to be a political disaster, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But an interesting article by a bloke called James Chessel came out a couple of days ago, and he he says at a time um, what, and he's saying that this could create problems for Bill Shorten here in Australia. He says, what should be of concern for Shorten is the way Corbyn conducted himself during the three-month campaign. At a time when authenticity is in short supply on all sides of politics, he came across as a genuine candidate far removed from the poll-driven messaging of the Westminster establishment. This rejection of mainstream small-target candidates mean Corbyn's apparent shortcomings, his age, his unabashed enthusiasm for socialism, his beard, his lack of rhetorical flair, ended 
ended up working in his favour. Corbyn is everything, Shorten is not. People know what the UK opposition leader stands for. Even his rivals admit he is an uncompromising politician who has stuck to the same set of principles for three decades regardless of their popularity. Shorten is far harder to pin down. He is a former union leader like Corbyn, yet he has been dogged by reports he sold out workers. His vast network that stretches from the boardrooms of Australia's largest companies to the back rooms of the labour movement, making him a deeply compensated, complicated figure. There is a groundswell in support for unapologetic leftist figures around the world, etc., etc. So, quite an interesting little article, and um, and it uh, probably puts uh, Shorten in his place very much at the moment. Uh, and of course, I mentioned that because also um, that pit about the broad church, because after um, after um, Turnbull was elected by his party, uh, again, the, the right wing of his party came out and said, we're a broad church, we have to accept everybody. Uh, again, when Abbott and co ran it, there was no... no even semblance of, of, of giving any any ground at all to what might seem to be the more small L liberal sections of that party. But now, of course, that the small L liberal section uh, has, um, well, apart from the fact that, of course, that, that, uh, that Turnbull anyway <laughs> represents the 1%, so small L liberal has to be used very loosely. But anyway, that aside, uh, they, they now say he has to recognise the broad church. And the sign so far is he's going to, because he's already backed down two of the big issues that were seen, same-sex marriage and uh, and climate change. Uh, he's already backed off, so uh, not, a, not a great start. But then again, what do you expect from a man who represents the 1% and... Uh, and he's one of the richest men in the country. Oh, what's it matter? Um, so there you are again. Just sort of throw that one into the conversation. Normally I'd give you a cup of tea, but I mentioned we've got the kitchen's being thrown. I don't even notice when you came in, the kitchen's been thrown, thrown asunder here and the hot water system's totally out. They're putting a new one in. Hopefully by next, well, they said it'll be ready by tonight or tomorrow or something. But anyway, we can't even pour ourselves a cup of tea. It's a bit rough. <laughs> a bit rough. Uh, okay. Um, now... We've had um, just on a, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Uh, there's a there's been an ad running in the um, mainstream newspapers for the last week or two, uh, and it just says, "Asbestos, can you help? Did you work at Nielsen Porcelain's Os Proprietary Limited in Separation Street, Northcote, between '62 and '68? Do you know someone who did? A former worker needs your help, and then contact Slater and Gordon." And I just find that a, a particularly sad little ad because what it reflects is obviously someone's very ill and they can't find the evidence to specifically, presumably, because um, as we know, these people do tend to try to hold up any legal proceedings. Uh, and, in, and it's worth mentioning, I suppose, that the re-elected and for the umpteenth time deputy um, leader of the Liberal Party, of course, was herself a lawyer who worked for the asbestos industry in trying to oppose workers' claims there. So that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. And on that area of safety, a report came out recently uh, by Safe Work Australia looking into the road freight transport industry and it says that 20% of trucking operators break safety rules to compete work on time. Uh, it identifies significant gaps between employers and employees and attitudes towards safety. It says workers have less faith than employers in workplace health and safety practices. My word, isn't that a surprise? With Safe Work Australia also saying that to some degree, pressure from management stops workers from following safety practices. That last bit was a quote. But Victorian Transport Association Chief Executive Peter Anderson says the survey lacks depth and is very shallow. Good on him. Um, it found evidence of a culture that accepted risky behaviour to get the job done as quickly as possible. It says this culture probably contributes to the high rate of deaths and injuries with road transport, the higher acceptance of risk-taking and rule-breaking in the industry compared to other industries is concerning. They may, these may be key factors driving the high levels of injuries and fatalities. The findings suggest that workplace conditions and to some degree pressure from management stops workers from following safety practices, highlighting work design as a problem. And it makes the point that uh, more transport workers die each year but in other industries. They also suffer major industries including sprains, strains and joint and muscle problems which are common. And of 184 workplace deaths in Australia in 2014, 48 were in the industry. Now only agriculture, forestry and fishing with 46 had a comparable death rate but that 184 in my opinion, that figure they always use to me it, uh, downplays it completely because it doesn't take into account 
all those people who die not in the workplace directly but indirectly through stress, heart attack, all sorts of things and cancers and etc. that of course all those asbestos people have to be deemed to be workplace injuries surely um, but they, they're not counted in the official figure. So the real figure of course of death in the in, in industry is just so much higher than they tell us. But following that a couple few days later <laughs> um, out came another story. Employers have warned of job losses, higher compliance costs and potentially increased prices for consumers resulting from new minimum pay rates proposed for truck drivers. The Australian Industry Group said that implementing the first major ruling by the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal would threaten the viability of owner drivers and transport operators. And um, the Australian Industry Group Chief Executive Innes Wilnox, we all know Innes is a lovely man, said the order would impose a very onerous and unwarranted regulatory burden on transport operators and their clients, which would cost jobs and threaten the viability of transport operators. And but it would flow on to consumers, the usual stories. Um, and but in fact, the the report um, it's it's imp- it. It will also, let's hear what they want to say again, it will also impose substantial cost increases on businesses which use road transport with flow-on effects. Terrible, terrible, terrible. The union made the point that 29% of drivers currently receive wages below the award rate once their vehicle and running costs are taken into account. The proposed changes would help address driver fatigue and encourage compression of the supply chain. Apart from the significant, uh, well, that's it, but we won't go on with that, but just that, uh, one, there's a report about the terrible safety record in the industry and then when they're trying to bring in better rates and and measures to uh, make it safer, they... uh, we get told how it's going to affect. It's always how it's going to affect us all, and then consumers are going to suffer, isn't it? When workers get wage rises, etc. And of course, um, it is a work situation. There was a report also about the Royal Australian College of Surgeons and how they, um, how bullying in the workplace has been rife, uh, and that of course does affect particularly young young people in the workforce. Presumably, young people will be the main targets of all that. Uh, now. <laughs> A few days later, again, this wonderful story came out. Live nude models were were advertised for surgeons to photograph at a major Australian conference next month, just days after they got this report about sexual harassment. The live nude model workshop is being built as part of a major attraction at the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery's National Conference, be attended by thousands of surgeons next month. I bet they'll all be male too if there's a... Anyway, on Thursday, the, the, they were forced to apologise to victims of bullying, etc. But when questioned about the appropriateness of having nude models, um, their president, Dr. Tim Papadopoulos, claimed the material had been included on official conference programs by mistake and that no nudity would take place. It was just a clerical error. They would never have put the word nude in there. It was a mistake and it has been rectified. It is purely a professional ballet dancer who is modelling for them and is just exploring the female form, contours and proportions. So there you are, a bit of... So, big mistake, unfortunately, and... Bloody hell, why do people carry on about it when it's just a simple mistake? Um, and um, on that, because we've also seen at the Royal Kanga Mission into uh, you know, attacking unions, uh, lots of evidence, particularly from Borrell and Mike Kane, the head of Borrell, attacking the union, saying it's, you know, it's almost setting the poor company broke, and this is absolutely terrible. Now, Borrell's announced it's, 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 it's looking to... Uh, take over some businesses in the US uh, and and it uh, it wants to move into the protracted home building recovery in the US and uh, Kane, the very same Mike Kane who says the unions are sending them broken is suing the unions for trillions said he has up to $800 million to pursue acquisitions and discussions with potential targets um, as Borrell seeks to diversify into lightweight, etc., etc. So here's a man who's screaming poor at the Royal Commission. The unions are sending him broken. What do you know? He's got 800 million loose chains lying around to go and buy up a few companies in the United States. So uh, I suppose the when they if they if they win the case against the unions and get all this money, well, ditto. They'll be. Anyway, one just thought I'd throw that one into the conversation for the hell of it. Um, and before we go to our guest, I just want to mention also that there was another story this week that cost. Now we, and I'll raise the background of this. I wanted to bring in was that we're always told that that 
we need the private sector to do all the infrastructure to own the infrastructure because it's so much more efficient. It can do everything under... When government do jobs and big projects, everything overruns, they're just hopeless. But once the private sector does it, it's efficient, it comes in under, etc., etc. Well, would you believe cost overruns across Australia's liquefied natural gas construction sector have topped $42 billion dollars um, and um, the big ones have been Chevron, etc. But it goes across. There's a number. Of, there's heaps of them where uh, they're supposed to have finished much earlier. They're still going. These mass, massive costs. This is the efficient private. Imagine if the governments had done that. They'd be imagine what the overrun would have been. Have to be incredible. And allied to that. Um, the a, a container terminal mob uh, pushing for changes to rental agreements in the port of Melbourne, and in fact, all the people who use all the private companies that use the port of Melbourne are calling out for controls because the state government, and I think quite wrongly, and it shouldn't happen, wants to privatise the port of Melbourne. But they're all saying, well, that's going to lead to higher higher uh, costs. So um, when we had when we as electricity users had to pay extra for the efficiency of the private sector because we we're told we'd all be better off it was okay but when it's the private sector being hit by the private sector and the same things happening at airports where you've got companies screaming about the fact they've got monopolies now that they've been privatised and prices have gone through the roof um, well there you are the efficiency of the private sector um, and another one just in passing um, there was advice in a special uh, People might know the Financial Review once a month has a magazine called Boss that falls out on one of the Fridays of the month. And the last edition last Friday had a special article for for MBA, which of course are um, uh, business management, management business, etc. Um, uh, um, uh, graduate courses. What am I saying? Post-grade courses. Uh, people who do this, there's a whole advice on how they can go to America, study over there, come back, and the entire trip can be financed by our tax break, tax office. And it makes the point. Jenny has just returned from a six-month secondment in California. She studied a post-grade course at a top U.S. university and then claimed the whole trip as a tax deduction. And... Um, and never maxim MBA director at Bond University, our first our first private university, of course, which specialises in business management courses. We always advise our students to get professional tax advice. In some circumstances, MBA students can claim education expenses. So isn't that wonderful? So if you want to become a big business person, you can have the taxpayer pay for you to get there in the first place. Isn't just absolutely sensational? Okay, that's enough. Well, that's enough of me raving on. We're going to go to Peter Logan after this break, and we're going to talk about. Um, one, a school in Albert Park, but also the government's embracing, yet again, uh, Bernie Eccleston and the Grand Prix. OK, on the line we have Peter Logan. Peter's a member of the Save Albert Park Group. In fact, regular listeners to their program here, or even irregular ones, I suspect, might well know Peter because he, he's a regular here as well on 3CR. But Peter, um, we do want to talk about school this morning, but Firstly, um, at the weekend, the government, or last week in fact, but again at the weekend, the government uh, said it's got the Grand Prix lined up for Melbourne yet again. And um, in fact, our our Premier said it's it's where it's exactly where it belongs in the great city of Melbourne. Um, you must feel great about that, do you? Uh, yes, well, uh, it, this, let's keep the hyperbole out of this one, Kevin. It's more... Um where, you know, we've got a big problem. We've got parks in Melbourne. That's the probably a lot of the beauty of Melbourne. So the Premier seems to think we exploit everything that's beautiful and, uh, you know, it'll, it'll all be great. Uh, there's something there that's going wrong in his brain, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe it's about polling in marginal electorates and they seem to think it's all right to do this. I don't know. Out there where they rev cars all day. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Peter, um, of course, I was saying earlier in the program, be, before Labor won government back in um, the Brax days, uh, they were totally opposed to the Grand Prix. They said it was terrible and Ronnie Wanker was, Ronnie Walker was, um, was destroying our gardens, etc. Uh, the local member, John Thwaites at the time, uh, very much opposed to it. Yet, as soon as they won the election, they must have got some confidential information or something that showed it was also wonderful. Well, I think it, they, they sort of morphed 
during the 1990s. So I can I interrupt you um, briefly because I, I said earlier in the program we couldn't make tea here this morning. They've had a uh, there's there's plumbers out there changing the whole system. But we've <laughs> someone's put a kettle on and we've actually had some tea made for us. So I'm going to pour some, and that's it's wonderful wonderful news, Peter. Wonderful news. We're going to have oh, some tea. Kevin, I've had a, a cup of tea at the tea shop opposite your studios. It's only a half a block away. They sell that's all they sell is cups of tea. Well, here <laughs> we go. We go. You'll hear it pouring over your reply. <laughs> well, carry on with the program. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we get back to, they had a problem in the 90s uh, when John Brumby was the leader before uh, Steve Brax. Uh, Kennett was humiliating him on several issues. I mean, Kennett was a bully, let's face it, during that time. And um, he, this was the one thing that Kennett won't let go of even now. He seems to think it's a great success, you know, because he had some very good friends at Crown Casino, Ron Walker, Kerry Packer and uh, Lloyd Williams were the three. And, uh, of course, they were his friends because they knew Jeff was going to deliver a big major event, uh, one free tram ride away from Crown, which, you know, that when it first arrived, the park was taken over I mean, we've now spent close to a billion dollars in public money. Kenneth said it would cost nothing. Um, so anyway, during that time, the Labor Party looked at it and thought, oh, he sold it so well, this perception, you know, a cargo cult of a Grand Prix will make Victoria great. Um, and, and some people with perhaps a lack of self-esteem or something or other probably thought, oh, this is good. Um, I'll back Jeff. Jeff won some blue-collar voters over to him. And uh, bingo, uh, Brumby and Brax changed their policy. And I think that was where it all went. And so by the time they got into office, Steve Brax was saying the same lies that uh, Kennett was saying. I mean, they were saying things like 50,000 tourists were coming for it, which was rubbish. You know, the the hotels, there's only 27,000 hotel rooms in Melbourne. There were fewer then. And most of them, they were 70% full during the year back in those days. So there's only a few thousand hotel rooms that were never filled. You know, the ones that were vacant were never filled during Grand Prix time. It's still today. There's no extra flights coming in, you know. Um, so they've gone with the perception, but they haven't told the truth, that's for sure. And uh, this has been a problem. So now we've got... Uh, Daniel Andrews up there again, spruiking because it's the easy road for them. Telling the truth is hard sometimes for politicians if people people haven't been told. Yeah. Oh, hello. You you went off there somehow, Peter. I don't know what happened. Oh, sorry. Yeah, just yeah. was just for the the last few seconds of what you were saying. Yeah. I'll stand near the phone. Near well, the, no, it, it, it seemed to go dead. Actually, I don't know what happened, but anyway. That, oh well. Well, I mean, it was all about the perception rather than the reality. I mean, we've got a fact sheet on our website, and we can prove that every major claim is wrong. Uh, so that's where we're we're staying by that uh, that view. Yeah, those claims are. I mean, they they talk about the fact that the state pushes money, gives it money every year, billions and millions of dollars, and we don't really know how much exactly, do we? But, no, no, but there's extra subsidies yeah. beyond the sixty or seventy million they put in each year. Uh, over and above, then they say though it's worth more than that to the to the economy, to the community. Um, do we all benefit from that? Do we? Uh, that is total rubbish. It was that was destroyed that myth by the Auditor General way back in two thousand and seven. He commissioned a cost benefit analysis, which is the only proper study that economists recommend, and uh, they found it caused for every dollar you put in the economy loses 50 cents. Now, for every dollar that's put in, we've paid for an update of that uh, cost-benefit analysis. And um, now, for every dollar you put in, the economy goes backwards a dollar. So what they claim, this is governments, they go and get an, a, a consultant uh, to do a impact study. Now, these things always have a plus because they don't look at the cost. So they're not telling the truth when they say it delivers a benefit. It doesn't. It delivers an impact, but the costs are greater than the than the benefit. Mm. So that's that's the you know the auditor general is right. They are wrong. So if it's one for one, then literally we're simply handing money to the private sector for no benefit. For no benefit at all, and uh, they won't complain because. Uh, the government spending money on them. You know, this is a few hotels can put their rates up for that weekend, 
Um, the local pubs actually don't do well. I know the publicans in South Melbourne, I used to be the ward councillor, and um, they say to me, oh, we can't speak out, Peter, because our, you know, the Hotels Association will come down on us like a tonne of hot bricks, but can you please get rid of the Grand Prix? It's no good for our business. So, I mean, it's as bad as that when the, the local pubs, the locals all go away for the weekend, so their normal customers aren't there, you know. That's... Mm. Uh, even in a business sense, it's uh, not very successful. Well, I joined protests for the first couple. I remember there the was sort of the trams being sent. Well, again, they were providing free trams from the city yep. at public expense. But uh, but also tram. also <laughs> within a certain radius, there, everything was closed. Nothing could, cars couldn't get in. And so the businesses yes. who said they were going to make money were screaming because there were no customers yes. coming past the door. Oh, yeah. Well, the reason why the cars couldn't get in, it's quite simple, isn't it? The Grand Prix fans are motorists, basically, and they'll drive there. So uh, the government, you know, and the council said, oh, all right, um, there's no parking at all for customers. So they, they then arranged for this free public transport. But I think it was all part of the big picture that Ron Walker was a director of Crown and a major shareholder. He was also the chairman of the Grand Prix. He's only just retired, actually. So it was a neat tie-up to then don't have the customers coming in in their cars, get them to get on public transport and then give them a free ticket that uh, the tram doesn't stop till it gets right outside Crown. That's the, And it's still today. The first stop from the, the, the Grand Prix circuit is uh, Crown Casino. And I, as I said, I went to the first couple, but obviously I, I, you know, sort of stopped going then and it was sort of became a fait accompli. Yet your group just keeps going. What, what keeps driving you? Well, I think it's about... Mainly government honesty. If no pun intended there, by the way. Someone has to. <laughs> yeah. Someone has to call them on it and produce the evidence, and we produce the evidence. And oh, we also have volunteer group down in the park doing renovation of the park. You know, um, we've got a whole corner of it they've given us virtually to do all the, maintain all the trees and plants. You know. So we, we do all that as part of our public service. Yeah. But uh, the main thing is research and, um, yeah, just telling people the facts. And I think that everyone who lives around it knows, knows the facts, but um, it's probably those uh, voters in swinging electorates that are uh, perhaps, you know, it's very hard to get to them. You know, I have trouble recognising it as a sport, but anyway, they, apparently it is. Um, all right, Peter, look, we'll get on to why we actually rang you today. Um, Albert Park, still affecting Albert Park, of course. Um, schools, tell us what's happened there. We know the government has sold off all these school properties uh, on the yes. basis that uh, kids weren't there anymore, and suddenly we discovered that people do have kids and there's kids. Yes, it's um, people have sex, they reproduce. Good God. <laughs> Isn't that yes. an amazing fact? Oh, this shouldn't <laughs> and, happen. You know, we've brought sex into the program now. <laughs> but, yes, and so all those schools were sold off. Now we've got, um, I know, you know, one of the principals personally, and his school was 150 kids back in early 90s. He saved the schools. Now it's 700. They have filled the playground with two-storey portables. The council's given them the park next door for the playground, and this is this is common. So, okay, what's the problem? We've got too few schools for the kids. So the government sees the solution as, although they're supposed to be also to provide parks for kids to play in, uh, no, they're taking part of Albert Park to make it into a school. Now, there are already um, two schools there in the park, um, which, you know, uh, the, um, or there was a third South Melbourne Tech School as well, which has now been converted into a, uh, an institution, a sport study institution. So really, there's three schools now. So this will be the fourth school uh, in Albert Park. So governments just see it as, oh, it's terra nullius, you know, there's no... Uh, there's no use for that land. No one wants to be healthy. We'll just take it. And, uh, it's like Royal Park where they put Commonwealth Games villages and keep extending yeah. hospitals without compensation, yeah, right. etc. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I did a submission. Uh, it was on. Uh, you know, our local member actually asked me to. Save Albert Park's good at writing submissions too. So we get asked by the local member. Uh, Martin Foley, actually, who we, we did it. And I photographed, uh, I got off the, the internet, Central Park, New York, and I showed them, here's a park that's beautifully landscaped, lots of trees, no excisions. You know, they didn't look at, New York didn't look at their park and say every decade we'll take a bit, put a school here or put a works building there, you know. 
and then showed them Albert Park with all the bits that have been chopped and cut off it and then hardly any trees planted, you know, and um, showed them that really it's it's a park that, um, that's been seen as a handy piece of real estate. And, and also over at Olympic Park area, you can see that there, the tennis centre has now morphed into a whole street of car parks, multi-level car parks, that we were promised by John Kane that we would have an extra park provided over there when the Army Depot left. The Army Depot left and now there's another stadium on that site. So governments promise, but in parkland they don't deliver. All they do is take it away. And mm. there's been that history in Melbourne of parkland just being chipped away. So this is another uh, another one where, you know, they're seeing, because there was an old defence building in Albert Park, they go, oh, well... Um, that's already been taken, we'll make a school, which, of course, will be... There'll be a greater demand of that parkland around it for uh, for the playground, etc. Mm. For our listeners, yeah, which... Just exactly where in the park is this bit they're talking about? Um, it's in Albert Road. If you go down from the city, down Clarendon Street, you reach an entrance, which 100 years ago was a beautiful entrance. Into Near the, the old South Melbourne footy ground. Yeah, the old South Melbourne footy ground. And there were... There were little terraced gardens there. Can you believe this, Kevin? Terraced gardens with volcanic rocks around them. They didn't have good lawnmowers back, of course, 100 years ago. And so it was all a beautiful spot. And then the motor car came along. So the car parks have just been growing and growing. So now you enter, you see a huge car park, the old South Footy Ground, which is now Lakeside Stadium. And then there's an army little scattering of army buildings and then there's the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre. So there's a whole lot of buildings there and a car park, you know, and acres and acres of asphalt. So it's not a good look for tourists. So they arrive in Melbourne, they think, oh, a city that's famous for its parks and gardens. You know, the Botanic Gardens is beautiful and and uh, the domain over there, you know. I run around there, actually, now, more so than Albert Park as a runner. But anyway, so they arrive there and there's this army depot, an anachronism in the park, um, which we've always, the local community said, well, let's chip away and get rid of it, you know, bit by bit or the whole lot, to, to because the parkland has all disappeared in this corner. And that's that little army depot is where they want to put the school, which you can see it's there's two two-bedroom houses and a hall. That's all that's there. Uh, you know, a school is a lot bigger than that, as you can imagine. Mm. So it's going to morph into... Uh, like a, a whole lot of buildings and then a car race circuit just behind the school where the kids' playground would be is where the car race circuit is. So, you know, they're trying to squeeze everything in um, and leave virtually no parkland along that stretch. And what stage is it at in terms of, you know, getting oh, it done or fighting it, etc.? Well, I'm meeting the director of major projects of Department of Education at 10.30, actually, mm. <laughs> because... I used to be on the planning committee for this city when I was a councillor and I'll give him all the uh, impediments that um, there is actually a, a document in the planning scheme that says you only park-related uh, buildings are to go in that park, for example. Um, I know they'll, they'll get around all of this, but, yeah, that's what we're doing is Save Albert Park. Um, Parks Victoria put us forward as the local experts on parks. So we're meeting with the, the head of, um, you know, the projects for the education department. Mm. We've come up with alternative sites, so we're, we're not negative. You know, we're not a Tony Abbott. No, 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 I'm against everything. We've uh, looked up alternative sites. They can buy them. Uh, they're not too dear um, because some are not zoned for high-rise and that. So they can pick up something that's in a commercial area, handy to public transport. They can build a school there. Um, so we're giving them, uh, you know, opportunities and, and pointing out the impediments of using parkland. Mm, you've presaged my next question, but but it, in terms of saying not too dear, I mean, they in that part of the world, real estate's pretty expensive. But of course, they've sold off schools because it is expensive anyway. Yeah. So it's come back to bite them, really, hasn't it? Oh, that's right. Well, you sell a school for a million, it's twenty million to put one back. I mean, I was on uh, when I was on the council. We were doing consultation with locals on the high school. We did it on behalf of John Thwaites, actually. He asked us to do it. We convened meetings, and I chaired them, and asked them, what do you really want on a high school? And they said, well, we hate the current one. It's, all, it's got concrete cancer, you know, curriculum's bad. So 
the answer was bulldoze it. Within two years, $20 million. It's a whole new, brand new school, and it's great. Now there's a waiting list for kids to get in. It was a school in the, you know, a decade ago, they didn't, parents weren't sending their kids there. Now there's a waiting list to get in the high school. So you can do it. Just, it was $20 million all up uh, for a major high school. You know, it's it's sort of it, it's the Grand Prix is sixty to seventy million dollars in cash a year. Mm-hmm. Well, that's three or four schools you can build, or more, because uh, a primary school you can actually do it cheaper. So maybe four primary schools you can build for that. So really, the money's there; they're just wasting it on the car race. Yes, and um, is this is this a primary or secondary? I presume it's primary if they're going to be primary, yeah, yeah new kids coming through, so to speak. But then they'll yeah. well, the secondary school is there, but you say there's a long waiting list anyway. It's full, I oh, know. And the council closed the road to give them a playing space there too. We mm. close a lot of roads and things. Another primary school, Albert Park, we closed the road there, uh, gave that to the school as a playground. Um, so we're doing and gave them the park in Port Melbourne as the playground, then it reverts to a park after. And Elwood, we did the same. We closed a bridge across the Elwood Canal uh, and then the, dug up the road and that's uh, a con- you know a school ground during the day, park after. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at alternatives. Because of the lack of parkland, councils have to you know, really try hard to squeeze every space to get extra parkland. So if the high school's already full and got a waiting list and these new kids come through from this other school, oh. they're going to need a new oh. high school somewhere, aren't they, at that's some right. point? That's right. Well, that's why we're asking... Whereabouts, where in Albert Park will that go, do you reckon? Well, we're meeting the department. I mean, they'll probably look at our alternative sites and then put them in their list for the high school if they don't use it for a primary. So we're actually helping them do their job. <laughs> But I've got, you know, I've got more local knowledge. I know all the zonings, we've rezoned certain areas and we've kept certain areas still in business uh, low-rise so they're low-cost sites. So it's a last opportunity to get some sites and do something now rather than just take up more parkland. I mean, you're, you're putting this to me that if they're putting a primary school in the park, they've already got one high school... Um, why can't they put a, you know, I mean, this is their thinking. Mm. They go, why can't we put another high school yeah, in the park? Yeah, exactly. You know? oh, and, and, you know, th- this is their simple Simon thing, or what, what land does government own now, rather than where can we just get a site and uh, put a school, which is what they should be doing. Mm. How many schools have they sold off in the area? Oh, I've lost count. The Catholics sold some off as well. So um, all told there'd be four or five in this area. Um, and some have converted to special schools where they had uh, for, you know, disabled kids and that. There two have converted to that use. Um, so, you know, you'd probably look at six or seven if you include those that mm. morphed into a different use. And, and, and the, the one... other funny thing, I mean, Kevin, the port, uh, down, way down in Fisherman's Bend, the Melbourne Grammar bought a huge site, industrial site, now they get it rates-free. You know, there were hundreds of thousands of dollars of rates coming to the mm. council. They've built a huge sports complex in there. It's hockey grounds, tennis, footy ground, all of this. I lobbied them when we were trying to get Little Ass, saying, well, we can't get it in Albert Park because there's a, um, a Grand Prix there. We were stopped for having Little Athletics. Can you please share it with the community, given that, you know, there's a huge subsidy and a rates subsidy? No, no, that's it. <laughs> You don't even ask Melbourne yeah. Grammar if they share. And, and that the, the rate subsidy, I presume, is because they're a church organisation. Would that be the reason? That's right. Yeah. Educational yeah. and church and non-for-profit, where before it was all industrial. But if Melbourne Grammar can do it, turn an industrial site into a sports complex, which is like a beautiful park setting as well, all behind a wall, you won't, you're not allowed in, old chap. You're not uh, old school tie, you know. And most of that'd be built through state aid anyway. It should be going yes, into public. It should be going into the public system. Yeah, state and federal. Mm. And this is why I thought there'd be a good case if they could share it. You know, <laughs> you get frustrated when you're a local government councillor. Right? <laughs> the last thing, know. the you last know. thing Melbourne Grammar's going to teach is a bit of socialism, Peter. No, we're not, yeah. <laughs> no, that was the problem we had then. Yes, um, but. Um, the schools that have been sold off now, I presume. Well, I'll ask. I'll ask the question cynically. How many of those have been converted into public housing, for instance? Uh, zero, none. 
Now, our, our local council does own a housing trust and we support another one. We've been converting car parks and things into social housing. Uh, there's a Port Phillip Housing Association mm. and a Southport Housing Association. So we've been a very keen supporter as a council, Port Phillip Council. Um, but, yeah, the um, when governments sell it, it's private apartments and you wouldn't get anything under $800,000 in those any of those apartments in those schools now. They're all, um, you know... Well, eight hundred thousand and going up from there. Yeah, and as you say, they'd sell them for a million, but the developer would make mm. millions out of that million they spent. Yeah, I mean, our council. You know what we did? We had a depot site in St Kilda, so we sold it to the developers on the proviso that they gave us, uh, and I forget the number. It was somewhere between ten and twenty apartments back for social housing that we then gave to the. Uh, the local housing trust. So, so we were a council that we were trying to set an example for other councils. If the government won't do it at higher levels and private won't do it, you can do it yourself by, uh, you know, by doing getting it back in kind. And, and now, of course, those apartments are all it's all working well, and they're at much greater value than what the council had valued them, you know, in the first place. So it's a win-win. Both sides, councils can do these things. But of course, in this case, we're seeing developers make millions and now the government having to fall back on public parkland for what is effectively a subsidy to those developers. Yes, that's right. That's right. And uh, it's we, we, we have the private market that people seem to think that they rule everything. Well, no, they don't. Governments can regulate. I mean, this is the whole point, isn't it? That governments have certain powers to make laws or to make planning schemes and, you know, the whole lot. But um, we seem to think, oh, oh, no, you can't. And then there's there's a much wringing of hands later. Oh, we haven't got any land. We have to use the parkland up now for something. Yeah. Yeah. How much support is your campaign getting in the local community? Oh, we've got all the local supporters. But, you know, the majority, there's some rev heads who seem to think that, um, well, you know, it's we should be like Monaco or something, you know. <laughs> but in terms of this school, job, in terms of this educa- this school building side, I mean, mm. is there is there massive opposition to it? Uh, oh, the school, no, because this is a heart tugger. It's been very well handled by Martin Foley and the, the you know the Andrews government. It's either you want a school, you have to have this one. So. The, the parents haven't been given an alternative. That's part of the problem. That's why we as a group have gone and sought uh, advice, planning advice, plus looked at all the real estate around, you know, because government's not doing its full job. It's not looking at the range of options and then deciding this one's the best overall. So so the parents are being blackmailed. It's a big problem. Mm. Yeah, it's always simple, isn't it? There's a bit of parkland there. We can use that and we don't have to go and buy a building oh, somewhere. Yeah. And all, you I know. know. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, we have, it's as bad as this. Our mayor of the city of Port Phillip had to sell their house and move house to get their kids into a primary school because they lived in South Melbourne. You can't get into Albert Park or Middle Park, so you have to move there. And I have, we have another woman who lives around the corner from us. She had to move to South Yarra and rent to get their kids into a primary school. They couldn't get from South Melbourne. They couldn't get into a primary. So it's desperate stuff because the Department of Education has just let this drift for a decade. And that's mm. the big problem. It sounds like an acute case of myopia because um, I said earlier that, you know, obviously they sold them off. There were no kids, but the kids are now coming. But it seems like they they didn't they didn't read what was going to happen or they just short-sightedly thought there's money in selling schools, so hang the consequences. Oh, yeah. Well, I studied the census. Each census, this trend was known from 2000 onwards. They knew that there would be a huge demand for these schools. And so each, you know, each census consolidated that trend. They knew all the way through. And you can project from each census, you can project anyway. And because this city's gone from, when the Grand Prix was announced, 72,000 people lived in the three old cities, Port, Melbourne, South Melbourne, St Kilda. There's now well over 100,000. We're heading towards 130,000. If Fisherman's Bend is built, that's another 100,000. So we're looking at, say, four times the population with the same number of parks and virtually no parks in all this new development over near South Bank. South Bank hasn't got parks. 
the next one down Fisherman's Bend, when that's developed, there'll be virtually no parkland. So we're going to be really short on for parkland, schools, all the basics that governments should be providing. Indeed. I mean, Docklands is a good example of being the most disastrous planning as well, obviously, but South Bank's a very good example of it as well, yeah. Yes, that's right. And the next one will be this Fisherman's Bend, which is just next to South Bank. Mm. So, you know, watch this space. It's all been predicted, the same as the schools and the, the need for them. You can you can easily do it. You can predict it. You don't need to hire a consultant. <laughs> Just a bit of common sense. You know, you do a bit of research. There it is. That's what we do. And it, we've only got about a minute left, Peter, but the also the whole gentrification process, is that, has that been a problem in terms of trying to maintain some sort of um, mix of people across the municipality? Uh well, we've got a lot of uh, public housing still in South Melbourne, where I live in Port, um, and but you know, and the, then the the local housing associations are doing infill. But I mean, overall, I mean, I was the ward councillor here. We've got more QCs and judges and senior council per square kilometre than any other part of Victoria, and we probably have one of the highest income and education levels in this. This electorate, which is Martin Foley's electorate, it still returns an ALP, uh, even though it's a high-income area. But, of course, when you average it out, it's still reasonably high-income. But there's some very poor people who live here. So there's, it's, the contrasts are getting worse, actually, between the very poor and the very rich. Mm. I'm feeling like I'm in the bottom end of retired, and I do a lot of community work, so I'm going backwards. So... I'm acutely aware because you get priced out eventually. That's the problem. Yeah, that's right. That's the problem. I had when I was in Fitzroy Council, we had the same problem for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Look, Peter, we're going to have to wind up there. But look, thanks for your time, and we'll keep a, we'll keep an eye on it. But I I don't think you are going backwards. I think it sounds like you're going forwards in many good ways. So keep it up. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Peter. Um, and. Um, that we've been chatting away there to Peter Logan, who's a member of the Save Albert Park Group, and um, that was City Limits. Next week it is housing. Uh, we were going to have Peter up front as well, but hopefully we'll talk to Auntie Jenny Munro in Sydney also about um, the issue at Redfern, um, and there's been a few developments there in the last few weeks, so we'll catch up with those, and general housing issues, which always depress people no end, so hang around next week and feel really depressed. And... Um, and I was told I shouldn't say that by someone else. I'll, I'll get over it one day. And um, Ian, look, thanks for coming in and doing that. We're going to also do. Um, we're going to do another program later. Yep. Terrific. Okay. And uh, I'm I'm going now. Corey's. I hope Corey's feeling a lot better. Ian, say goodbye to people and thank yourself for doing a great job. Will you? Thank you very much for having me here. <laughs> we'll see you again next week. Oh, yeah. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.